The information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello and welcome to the APT in Neurology section vestibular special interest group podcast discussion on persistent postural perceptual dizziness, also known as 3PD. I'm your host, Pooja Agarwal, a physical therapist by profession and experience since 1994. We're extremely fortunate today to have with us an expert in the field of 3PD, Dr. Jeffrey Staub. He's the professor of psychiatry, chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology, director of the Fellowship in Consultation Liaison Psychiatry, and consultant in the Departments of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Otorhinolaryngology, head and neck surgery at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Staub and his colleagues in the Behavioral Medicine Program evaluate and treat more than 2,000 patients each year with psychosomatic, functional neurologic, neurootologic, GI, and other disorders such as cancer distress-related disorders. His research centers on problems at the interface of neurology, otology, and psychiatry. Dr. Staub is best known for his investigations and work on chronic dizziness. He received a bachelor's in science in chemical engineering from Northwestern University, MD from the University of Pittsburgh, and MS in bioengineering from Carnegie Mellon University. Dr. Staub completed an internship in internal medicine and residency in psychiatry at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, followed by a fellowship in traumatic stress disorders. He previously served on the faculties of the Uniformed Services University, University of Florida, and University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Staub has authored and co-authored over 140 scientific articles, reviews, chapters, and abstracts. He serves on the editorial boards of six scientific journals in the fields of psychosomatic medicine and otorhinolaryngology and holds a leadership position in several societies, Functional Neurological Disorder Society, Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry, and the Barony Society. Welcome, Dr. Staub. It is such an honor to learn from your extensive experience, and we are very grateful that you've accepted our request to be a guest on this podcast. Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for inviting me. Pleasure is ours. We wanted to start off with symptoms of 3PD, and if you know of any gender differences that have come up in your research. Sure, so let's start with the symptoms. So the core symptom is a sense of uh, dizziness or unsteadiness, um, but also swaying and rocking sensation. So not typically spinning vertigo, but swaying or rocking vertigo, feeling of unsteadiness or rocking and swaying, and then uh, dizzy, this that sometimes patients will describe as cloudy or fuzzy headed. Um, and those symptoms, once 3PD is settled in, those symptoms are present most of the time. Doesn't have to mean every single moment of every day, but for the majority of the day and, the, and, and most of the days of the week. So patients can have short breaks, sometimes lasting for an hour or part of a day, but generally they don't have long runs of symptom-free periods. Is in it addition, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Is it I, accurate to say it is a 24-7 condition where people feel that they're always unwell? So for a lot of patients, yes, but occasionally people will say that their mornings get off to a decent start, but maybe a half an hour to an hour after they wake up, 
um, that they have difficulties. Other people will say that they might have some good days and bad days. Um, so it's not necessarily that the symptoms are socked in every moment of every day, but they're present for most of the time. And then in addition to that, uh, people have difficulties in with their own movements or in motion rich environments. So if people are moving around themselves um, or if they're passively moving, so riding in vehicles, um, doing escalators, uh, elevators, walking side or moving sidewalks, those kinds of things, um, or if they're in motion rich environments, so places with a lot of activity going on around them. Uh, those are particularly provocative um, and tend to increase symptoms. And, and when symptoms are increased, they may not immediately die down. So they may be, you know, if a symptoms are exacerbated by one of those types of motion exposures, the increase in symptoms can last for hours to days. Is there a typical age range that you see in this population? There is, and, and this is now, there have been um, now uh, four uh, clinical epidemiologic studies um, from around the world very consistent in their findings with regard to age and gender distribution. So um, this is a disorder that generally presents for clinical care in the late 40s to early 50s. Um, and, um, but the age range has been uh, published studies have been from teenage years up through older adult years. So patients in case series are published around the world from, you know, age 13 or 14 up through um, the late 80s or early 90s. And then as far as gender distribution goes, it's about two to one uh, women to men. How is it diagnosed? Is there a clinical criteria or is there any objective testing to make this diagnosis? So the diagnosis is based on the patient's history um, and the meeting the criteria for that swaying, rocking, unsteadiness and dizziness that's lasted for at least three months and present most of the time during that three month period. Then with those exacerbating factors that we talked about before, patients' movements either actively or passively and exposure to motion rich environments. Um, and then the, the testing um, is really about identifying whether there are other comorbid problems. So for example, um, patients can develop 3PD after um, a vestibular event, um, you know, BPPV, vestibular neuritis, other acute unilateral vestibulopathies. And so the, the idea of deciding whether or not to pursue testing from a vestibular standpoint, a neurologic standpoint, or general medical standpoint, because sometimes um, conditions like heart rhythm disturbances um, uh, can, can trigger 3PD is, is based on whether or not um, there's evidence for other ongoing problems. So 3PD is not, oftentimes people will say it's a diagnosis of exclu exclusion and that's not the case. You don't have to rule out everything before making a decision that a patient has 3PD, but rather if you have a sense that there are other things that are going on, uh, you may want to pursue um, neurologic, otologic, or other general medical testing to, to determine that. Okay, um, you mentioned some overlap with vestibular disorders. However, is there any overlap with non-vestibular disorders such as anxiety or chronic pain? So there is. Um, so one of the, in, in a couple of different ways, let's take the psychological ones first. So. There is evidence that people who tend to be worry warts by nature um, or that have anxiety disorders before they encounter a, an acute um, um, bout of dizziness are more likely to develop 3PD than those who don't have that background. And then there's also um, some evidence that the person who responds to an acute event, whether it's neuritis, PPPV, 
um, you know, a syncopal or near syncopal event, uh, other condition that can <clears throat> can trigger uh, an acute um, uh, bout of dizziness symptoms. That the person who responds to that with a high level of anxiety. Um, vigilance about their symptoms, worry about the consequences, fear that maybe it's something that's um, that's that's um, you know awful that's going to happen to them, or that they're permanently um, afflicted now um, by dizziness. Those kinds of illness-related worries. The person who gets those acutely is more also more likely to develop 3PD. So anxiety is a predisposing factor. Anxiety as sort of that sort of stirring the pot in the acute in the acute state that that uh, seems to set. To, to set the stage for 3PD. And then finally, um, um, a lot of people do have coexisting anxiety um, with 3PD, but it's not universal. Um, uh, patients do not have to have um, anxiety. Some people develop depression as well. On the, on the other hand, there can be uh, medical comorbidities too. So some things that set off 3PD are one and done, like an, like an episode of vestibular neuritis. Others can be recurrent, like recurrent episodes of BPPV or recurrent episodes of vestibular migraine. And some can be persistent things, like people who have orthostatic tachycardia, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, for example, um, or a long-standing anxiety disorder that continues um, with their 3PD. Uh, and so those are the ways in which both psychiatric and uh, other medical uh, comorbidities can go along with 3PD. I see. And uh, in terms of medications, um, one of the approaches is if you treat the medical condition with 3PD, there is still a remnant of the vestibular portion of 3PD. So what kind of medication approach is best suited to treat this or manage this? So. There are a number of open label studies that have been done over the years, both with 3PD and with its predecessors, that show that the medications in the SSRI family, so that's the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and the SNRI family, or the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, and those are medicines that are like fluoxetine or sertraline, um, venlafaxine or duloxetine. Um, those, those kinds of medicines originally developed to treat anxiety and depression are effective for 3PD. So there's two groups of medicines um, that, can, that can be used. Uh, it looks like all of the medicines in those two families, about a dozen medicines total, are equally effective um, for 3PD. Uh, and um, that the response rate is, it generally speaking, cuts the symptoms in half. So after about eight weeks or 12 weeks of treatment, patients will go from you know, moderately severe level of dizziness handicap to a mild or less level of dizziness handicap. Along with that, if there are other coexisting conditions, so migraine, other uh, medical conditions, um, other neurotologic conditions that also uh, warrant treatment, then that should be done in conjunction um, with the treatment for 3PD. Interestingly, medicines from other families don't have really very strong role to play. Um, there still is tendency in, in otology um, to use benzodiazepines to suppress chronic dizziness. Um, and we find that's, general, that's, that's not very often needed um, in 3PD. Usually we find that if somebody has a lot of anxiety that runs with it, we might have to use a benzodiazepine, but primarily we've moved away from doing that uh, to using the SSRIs and SNRIs. That was going to be my follow-up question. Uh, besides the benzodiazepines, what about the use of meclizine? Yeah, so there's no role to play, no role for vestibular suppressants um, in 3PD. Now, except if somebody continues to have episodic vertigo. So let's say somebody has Meniere's disease and 3PD together. Well, then, then either their family doctor or otologist may 
give them a prescription for meclizine or, or uh, prochlorperazine, compazine um, to use during an acute attack, but no, no good role for that on a day in and day out basis. Okay. And when we're assessing a patient with 3PD, um, is it likely to find a history of migraines or Meniere's or uncompensated neuritis? So um, the answer is yes, you can find those. Um, so probably the one that is most often comorbid would be migraine. And uh, not all patients who have migraine in 3PD have vestibular migraine. Um, and so we make the diagnosis of vestibular migraine and 3PD together when somebody has the day in and day out symptoms of 3PD. And on top of that, they have episodes of uh, vertigo um, that are connected to migraine features. So in other words, there's two, you can hear it, patients will tell you that they've got two things going on, their day in and day out 3PD symptoms, and then recurrent episodes in which they have, you know, vertigo attacks that break through that uh, accompanied by, you know, headache and light and sound sensitivity, those kinds of things. So that would be the most common of the, of the, of the factors that you mentioned. Meniere's disease is less common. Um, it does exist. Uh, and that, that in, in terms of being being a, a trigger and then a comorbid factor with with 3PD. And again, what you see there is those acute breakthroughs of the attacks of Meniere's disease superimposed on on 3PD. Um, and um, you know, good data uh, that have followed patients with vestibular neuritis events, so acute vestibulopathies, shows that really in terms of uncompensated status, it's only about 10% of patients that have physiologically lack of compensation so that you can still see a positive head thrust or a positive head shake test. Um, and uh, that can be um, coexist with 3PD. And again, what you'll find there is the day in and day out symptoms. Um, and then head motion induced briefer vertigo. So a person who move, makes a quick head movement, um, bends over, stands up fast, that they have a momentary uh, vertigo or unsteadiness, may have to, to step out to catch themselves. Um, but the way that you can detect the, the coexistence of 3PD is by asking them how they feel when they're still. Because if they have a, an uncompensated vestibulopathy, but they're not moving, um, but although, although in an environment where lots of things are moving around them, um, if they say, yeah, that even if I'm holding still, the environment bothers me, then that's not due to their, their uncompensated uh, peripheral deficit. That's due to the coexistence of the 3PD. Okay. Um, going back to the question on medications, you had mentioned SSRIs and SNRIs. Now, some of them like fluoxetine or paroxetine, is it possible in some patients those actually may induce some of these symptoms, like they get lightheaded after they start taking those or they start getting more anxious? So all of those medicines have on their label that they cause dizziness in, you know, about seven or eight percent, it says. Um, we've really not seen that to be a big problem as long as you start the medicine gradually. So sometimes, um, you know, physicians will prescribe the medicines at, you know, the full antidepressant, the full dose that they're used to using for depression or anxiety disorders. And that can then um, acutely make patients more anxious or more or, or dizzier. Um, so the, the medicine does have to be started slowly at a quarter to a half of the dose that 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 doctors might use be used to prescribing um, for for um, you know primary psychiatric disorders. Um, but it's it's been pretty rare in our hands that the medicines themselves, when when started gradually like that, trigger an exacerbation of dizziness. 
Um, occasionally they can trigger exacerbation of migraine. So if somebody has either vestibular migraine or regular migraine connected to it, uh, sometimes they'll, they'll say that their headaches are worse as they get started on medicine. So that's worth paying attention to. Okay. And do they need to be on medications for an extended period of time or do they start to withdraw and wean off as their symptoms get better? So what we generally do is to say to a patient, if we're going to start using medicines, and by the way, it's not always necessary to use medicines to, to treat 3PD. Um, 3PD can be treated with, with physical therapy and psychotherapy, and we'll talk about the psychotherapy part in a little bit. But for medications, what we say, if a patient's going to start that, we say to them, we really want you to think that you're going to be on this medicine for a year. And the reason for that is it takes about eight to 12 weeks um, to get really a decent effect. Um, and then we want to keep the medicine on board long enough for them to consolidate their gains, to take back their life, to return to activities that they may have given up uh, because of the dizziness. Um, and to really feel that they've got a good long run of, of symptom control um, before we think about tapering off. Um, and if somebody does have that, you know, at a year out, they say for the last six months, I've been in good shape. Every now and then the dizziness flares up on me, but I've been able to do what I want to do. Um, then we'll start a slow uh, tapering process, a little bit at a time coming down, watching for any potential relapse of symptoms. And sometimes that does happen. And if it does, then we, you know, continue the medicine for another year or two and think about trying again. Occasionally patients will say, you know, I'm just doing better than I have in a long time. I don't want to stop the medicine. I'm tolerating it well. It's doing its job. And I just want to keep going. And that certainly is possible. These medicines have been around now for 30 years, um, and we know they can be taken over the long run if they need to be. But generally speaking, it's a year. Reevaluate. Some patients will stay on. Some patients will be able to come off successfully. Some patients will start to have a little bit of symptom recurrence when they come off, in which case we, in which case we continue it. Um, if a patient, if we try to take a patient off a couple of times, um, and each time, even when done carefully, that you know that they they notice the symptoms recurring, then generally speaking, we 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 make the decision to to continue maintenance treatment indefinitely. Okay, um, given the anxiety component of this condition and also some subjective nature of symptoms, which we can't always measure, should there always be a psychologist or a psychiatrist or both involved in the care plan? Okay, so just one clarification. So anxiety is not part of 3PD itself. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not in the diagnostic criteria. It is true that patients tend to be anxious either before getting 3PD or because of it. So, so you're right that anxiety is commonly with that, but I don't want people to think that anxiety is part and parcel of 3PD itself because 3PD can exist by itself with no anxiety or depression. But when it is present, um, so when 3P, for 3PD itself, it's interesting that psychotherapy does play a role. There now have been some randomized controlled trials um, done um, in Australia and Japan um, that showed that, and in China too, um, that showed that um, 3PD, um, especially when used in conjunction with physical therapy or medication, um, provides a better resolution of symptoms and with medication, a potentially quicker response. So the key to that though, is if, a patient calls a, a psychologist and says, I need your help with dizziness. Most psychologists will say, my job isn't treating dizziness. My job is treating you know, anxiety, depression, those kinds of things. So sometimes um, you know, we've had patients go and try to find a, a therapist, a psychologist uh, to help them with therapy um, only to kind of get rebuffed by the psychologist because they're asking for help with 3PD and many psychologists don't know what that is. I would say most psychologists don't know what that is. So what I, what I tell patients is, talk to them first 
about how this is affecting you, about how frustrating it is, how demoralizing it is, how it makes you worry. Um, and then once you get in the door, you can sit down and tell the psychologist about not only those features, but about your dizziness. And if you do it that way, then the psychologist generally will know how to help you because they're used to taking care of patients who have anxiety, depression, demoralization, frustration, other kinds of things like that, along with a medical condition. But if you start with a medical condition first, uh, they'll, they'll think that, that, that somehow or another you've connected with the wrong person. But it's not essential. I generally like to do to have patients who have significant comorbidity, psychiatric comorbidity, see a therapist. But for patients who don't have a lot of psychiatric comorbidity, generally have them concentrate on medications and physical therapy. Okay. Um, sometimes we hear terms like chronic subjective dizziness, or sometimes the patients just tell us that the physician is not sure what to name it. Is, are there terms that are synonymously used with 3PD? Yeah, so chronic subjective dizziness was a term that, that my colleagues and I at the University of Pennsylvania used years ago. Um, but with, the, with the, um, the publication of the definition of 3PD, we, don't, we no longer use that. So that's an old term, it's, it's it re retired, but it's still in the literature. So some people will, will find it, either patients or doctors will find it and use it. Um, other terms that are used, um, uh, phobic postural vertigo is a term that even is older than chronic subjective dizziness. And um, uh, a lot of clinicians who have uh, trained and practiced in Europe um, will still use that term. It is not exactly synonymous with 3PD. It really is sort of 3PD plus the extra phobic part. Our, our colleagues in Munich um, do, you know, look for that phobic part when they make the, so the, 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 the diagnosis. Um, but in, in essence, a very similar uh, condition. And you're right that, that many um, doctors will just say, well, you know, I was, they, they would we use other terms. Some of them will still use the old term psychogenic dizziness from way back in the day. Um, because that's what they were, that's what they were taught. Um, and uh, others still think that, that, you know, 3PD is just a new idea, a new, a new term for a psychogenic dizziness, which isn't accurate. But, um, but, you know, so, so again, those older terms will still, will still come up from time to time. A lot of patients will be told, I don't know what you have, you know, that this is that you, your ears are fine. Um, so, so I can't help you. Um, and, uh, and, and so that's not an unusual thing that we hear from patients. I see. Um, and what is the role of imaging, if any, with um, such patients? So the only role for imaging is if you think that there is a uh, uh, some sort of a brain pathology. So um, if um, there's a concern for uh, stroke, um, for other brain illnesses um, that that MS sometimes can can cause dizziness, for example, um, or um, if there are some of the the symptoms to suggest canal dehiscence, like autophony um, or pressure um, phenomenon, um, then you may may wish to do have have someone um, do a, a dedicated CT scan of the temporal bones. But for 3PD itself. Um, you're, you're not going to get any evidence for to rule in or, or rule out 3PD based on the imaging results. Okay, and you had mentioned the importance of physical therapy and psychotherapy. What success rate would you attribute to these interventions, especially if the patient is not on any medication for this? Right, so there, there's so far with using the criteria of 3PD, there is um, one retrospective and one prospective study in, in the literature. There are others that, that, you know, that there I've seen hints of and, and um, um, more, there are certainly more to come. Um, but, the, but using physical therapy alone, about half of patients 
will have what what they consider to be a substantial improvement. So enough that uh, they value the physical therapy um, and that they have um, had an improvement in what they can do. The with physical therapy and also with the other with the other modalities, the tolerance for a person's own movements, so them moving around either active or passively, tends to increase quicker and more completely than their tolerance for visual motion cues. So those visual motion cues seem to bug people and stick around longer. Um, and so I usually tell patients that they're when they're doing physical therapy that they're gonna find themselves feeling more mobile first, that they can move around without provoking their dizziness, but they're still going to have some trouble in visual environments until they build their tolerance up for that. Okay. And is there any relationship um, between 3PD and certain psychological pathologies? So, um, the the again, those are uh, two separate things. So we don't want people to get the idea that 3PD is as a psychological or psychogenic problem because it isn't. Okay. But there are features that in a in a person's life that uh, psychological features that make it a little bit more likely that they'll get 3PD or that they'll struggle with, um, you know, chronic symptoms for a little bit longer. So as we talked about before, that that person who's got an anxious temperament, the worry wart kind of person, is a little bit more likely get, to get 3PD after an acute event um, and a, a trigger, and a little bit more likely to have anxiety running with it. Um, so so yes, you'll oftentimes see people who have anxiety and worry. Um, uh, along with their 3PD, but it shouldn't be thought of as an anxiety disorder and it shouldn't be thought of as that it's always going to be that way. Okay. And what, in your opinion, Dr. Staub, is the best way to um, educate most physicians whom we work with to identify this and make a referral for therapies? Yeah, that's actually the toughest question you've asked, um, <laughs> frankly. Um, and, and, and the reason for that is that, that, it, that because this is a relatively new diagnosis and because it's a diagnosis based only on history, um, you know, there is a little bit of reluctance on, on physicians' part, perhaps a little less on patients' part, frankly, but on physicians' part to say, well, I've talked to you so I can make this diagnosis. Um, oftentimes they will want to do some sort of testing to, to kind of support that diagnosis. Um, for, for physicians who haven't heard of it, there's sort of a sense, a tendency to say, so I don't know what that is. That's not for, that's not for me to sort out. But most, most physicians and most ENTs and practices and, and neurology practices that draw a goodly number of patients with dizziness, once, once they make 3PD part of their, you know, the, the differential diagnosis and get more comfortable with it, they're act, they actually get a, get a sense of, of, okay, you know, now I don't have to struggle with this group of patients um, because, you know, about one out of five patients with chronic dizziness in, in otology or neurology practices, it meets the, it meets criteria for 3PD. So if, if physicians don't don't um, know about it or are reluctant to make the diagnosis, then one out of five of their patients aren't aren't they're not going to be able to help very much. So that's really been the way that we've talked to people about this, talked to physicians about it. Is look, this is something that can really make it um, uh, a little bit more uh, uh, comfortable for you to work through um, the challenges of dealing with a patient whose chief complaint is dizziness. 
So um, what I there are now, um, you know, my team and others have published a number of, um, you know, kind of quick and easy um, short articles uh, in the both the neurologic literature and the otologic literature on 3PD. And generally speaking, I, you know, just try and, and connect the uh, doctors who are unfamiliar with that with one or more of those articles, depending on their on their specialty. Okay, thank you for that information. Any other uh, future research that's coming down the pike that we should look forward to? Yeah, so I think that the things that um, that we're really uh, the two main areas. One is trying to predict who is going to develop 3PD after an acute event. So the person that you know goes to the emergency department or goes to their family doctor with an acute episode of vertigo or that comes to see a physical therapist in the first couple of weeks or so after they've gotten an acute episode of vertigo, you know, which of those people are gonna go on to develop 3PD? That's still a question mark and that's an area of research because if we can identify those folks and intervene um, early, our hope is that we can prevent 3PD from happening in the first place. So that's, that's one line of research. And the second line of research is the fact that our current treatments that we've talked about, the physical therapy, the psychotherapy, and the medications, um, only treat a fraction of patients into complete remission. They treat others to good result, but not complete result. And they don't, they don't really help probably about you know, one out of 10 or one out of, of uh, five patients, depending on whether, you know, sort of tertiary care place like, like we have. So, they're, so, so we're not satisfied that we have you know, um, you know, treatments that work for everybody. So, so getting additional therapies, probably in the range of brain, brain modulation or brain stimulation kinds of studies, um, looking at those uh, treatment strategies. So those, uh, there's, there's little hints of those starting around the world. So looking for that, and and some of those are, um, you know, magnetic devices that the patients can actually uh, use from home. So, so those are already like, for example, there's a home. Uh, magnetic stimulation device that's that's used for migraine and another electrical stimulation device that's used for migraine. So um, that may be uh, in the future um, uh, for uh, 3PD, but the, but the research is just really in its infancy. Okay, well, thank you, um, Dr. Staff, for clarifying that anxiety is not a criteria to diagnose 3PD and it shouldn't be attached to the diagnosis. And the other thing is that um, corroborating the role of therapies is extremely helpful because um, that helps patients understand and even clinicians and doctors understand that they could refer these patients to the therapies that they need. Any final pearls of wisdom that you would like to share with us? Um, yeah, I think the, I think the biggest thing is that, um, you know, that that people are now getting increasingly comfortable with, with 3PD as part of the differential diagnosis. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, but I've also so, told some of my colleagues and, and students that, that as, as we move forward, it may well be that 3PD is kind of a, a temporary holder for us trying to get better understanding of how the balance system works and, um, uh, and, and functional changes that can happen. Um, in in the, uh, the, the the cause dizziness, so so I think 3PD is a is a um, a uh, a very helpful concept for us in the early 21st century, 
Um, but I look forward to the day, and hopefully I'll still be around, um, the day when, when we know even more um, and can, um, and, and can either, either uh, prevent it um, or treat it more completely than we do now. Dr. Stapp, we cannot thank you enough for um, such an enriching session, and we hope that we can have many more research articles from you to continue learning, and we thank you for your time today. Well, I appreciate the time to, to spread the word a bit. Uh, very nice questions, um, provocative kind of discussion. Hopefully, you'll find it helpful. And, and, very and that helpful. You're, yeah, and, and, and that your uh, group will find it helpful as well. Thank you for listening to this interview, which has been brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on the vestibular SIG and the ANPT, please visit www.neuropt.org. Thank you.